this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am John Yargo, your host. Today's guest is Kevin Killeen, whose new monograph, The Unknowable and Early Modern Thought, Natural Philosophy, and the Poetics of the Ineffable, has just been published by Stanford University Press. This monograph gathers together a range of early modern sources, including the mystic Jacob Bohm, the poetic, the poet and radical John Milton, the writer and royalist Margaret Cavendish, and the prophet Anna Trapnell. Taken together, these chapters offer a vibrant picture of literary culture's engagements, sometimes critical, sometimes appreciative of that which can't quite be understood by the mind or by language or by theology. Kevin Killeen is professor of English at the University of York. His previous books are the monograph, The Political Bible in Early Modern England from Cambridge University Press in 2017, and the Oxford Handbook of the Bible in Early Modern England, circa 1530-1700, that came out in 2015 and was co-edited with Helen Smith and Rachel Judith Willey. Kevin is also the editor of the journal Renaissance Studies. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. First, I want to ask about the genesis of this project. How did you come to be be interested in the unknowable? Well, I'm coming to this uh, subject as an early modern phenomenon in particular, um, and it emerges from thinking about the uh, intellectual and the uh, literary uh, cultures of um, the 16th and the 17th century. And I think it probably emerges from two different directions at one end from thinking about uh, the history of religion and science um, and how they're um, discussed in a manner that uh, implies a quite polite and gradual divorce uh, that they were uh, still friends uh, but going their own way over the course of the, the century. And this doesn't seem to me right um, at all. I think they're having a steamy affair. And there is a sense of the, the relations between uh, science and religion are um, at the heart 
of uh, this book. I may get lost in my own metaphor about the divorce and the affair there, so I'll stop with that. Um, at the other end of thinking, it emerges from um, uh, ideas about early modern poetics and rhetoric. Um, when early modern writers um, talk about poetics and rhetoric, it seems like quite a tame beast, how they theorise it. But that doesn't seem to have too much with how in common with how it works uh, in practice. Um, so a lot of the texts that I look at are pleasingly demented. Um, and this, this, in a sense, is um, uh, where the topic of the unknowable uh, comes from. The key idea uh, of it is that the era inherited a rich apparatus for thinking about the unknowable. And it's a, a, a set of ideas that comes from uh, the medieval mystical tradition, um, sometimes called the apophatic. Uh, the apophatic being what can't be spoken of except in, in negative terms. Um, and the Protestant North detests the apophatic and detests uh, mysticism. There's, there's a, a sense in which it supposes it to be Catholic, obfuscation um uh it's not the case by any means that the there's a diminution of religious fervor in the era um but it uh it uh, it's an era that's interested in um in hard doctrine rather than the fluffy cloud of unknowing uh, uh, that comes from the uh, early modern era um but this is the, the key argument the resources for thinking about mysticism the kind of gymnastics of paradox the lush rhetoric of um, ignorance um, proves irresistible um in the era for thinking about things other than uh than god uh, so this this is where it comes from this is the key idea of the book Oh, could you briefly gloss that term, the apophatic? Because I think that's kind of key to to your monograph, right? It it is, and um, uh, so the the apophatic um, refers to the set of strategies by which we try and think what can't be thought. And the paradigmatic model of this is um, God can't be comprehended. By humans, uh, no matter how we try, no matter uh, the the ways in which we try and imagine what the attributes of God are like, the essence of God is like, we as humans are simply too intellectually puny. Um, and at the same time, um, we um, are um, uh, able to produce strategies for uh, circumventing. Um, that lack in in ourselves um, uh, ways in which an intuition of what God is like can uh, be developed into an experience and the, the apophatic is the um, set of strategies um, often for, um, for thinking about what God is not um, and that by uh, producing this kind of sort of negative theology of uh, the things, the ways in which God is different from humans, we can produce a um, sense of what that thing is. Um, I, I love that descriptor, a pleasingly demented, uh, in, in your words, archive of sources. And that's kind of what I want to ask you about. Um, you draw on uh, a range of ideological um, an intellectual commitment writers with different commitments 
Um, also writers working in different modes, Milton in epic poetry, Brown in these aphoristic um, essays. Um, how did you choose your archive? Um, was there a text or a writer that was particularly difficult to explore in through the the lens or the rubric of the unknowable? The first thing to say about that is that the unknowable has no home in early modernity. Uh, it's a, a really uh, messy inheritance. Um, if if there was a starting point for me, um, it was the scientist mystic Thomas Brown, um, whose strangeness, whose incompatible frames of reference um, are quite ir irresistible. Um, he, like many writers, I think, is um, kind of conspicuously baffled by the world. Um, and this, this bafflement produces a theologically inflected poetics to uh, respond to it. Um, so um, he, he, he was probably the starting point, in many ways, perhaps also the uh, most difficult writer to frame in relation to um to the apophatic um my my in in terms of the ideological range and the intellectual range of the writers in this book that 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 matters um the center of the book is an argument about natural philosophy about the emergence of science uh utilizing and deploying these resources from uh mysticism um and this, this is particularly the case when scientific writers think about um, cosmology, for example, think about um, subjects which are outsized, which are um, beyond the um, uh, beyond the capacity for humans to to imagine to, together. And so there, there is um, there is this strange borderland of science where writers come across. Um, subjects like the beginning of the world the physics of the beginning of the world how did it come into being and what was the um not simply god snapping his fingers and the world coming into being but kind of what was what was they ask the chemical processes by which the world shaped itself into being so the the mechanics of creation from nothing from nothing for example, is a subject that um, recurs again and again in the era. When writers think about the infinite, when they think about the infinitesimal as well, the, these are subjects which are not really amenable to straight-up empiricism, uh, and they demand a, a more complex set of um, responses that, um, that are theological after a fashion and poetic after a fashion. The book also comes at the unknowable from another angle, a more political angle. Um, if if um, the mystic tradition doesn't thrive in early modernity, or if I said it doesn't thrive in early modernity, that's not entirely true because there is a down at heel radical tradition, a politically febrile set of communities in Germany, in Holland, in England, um, that um, are very interested in something like a canon of uh, mystical thought. Um, and importantly, this involves some um, brilliant, truculent women prophets as well, and the constituency of people uh, writing in this tradition ranters, fifth monarchists, and so on, is um, quite a different intellectual community from that we'll generally meet in intellectual histories. 
So the 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 book involves a, a, a kind of idiosyncratic medley of of thinkers, um, and I I quite like the idea that it's hard to imagine them all in the same room. They wouldn't get on together. They're not speaking in the same uh, register of um, of thoughts. The um, not not many people have written about mysticism in early modernity. Um, one great work, though, is uh, Michel de Certeau, who, who talks about um, the early modern legacy of mysticism as always already lost. It's something that uh, always seems to um, uh, have its heyday behind it. And he speaks of um, the way in which uh, mysticism no longer has much currency in early modernity, but hundreds of brilliant fragments remain. And in a sense, it's these these fragments that I'm interested in, the um, afterlife of this um, uh, pattern of thinking. Um, you, you mentioned as well um, if, uh, <clears throat> if there were writers missing from, from, from this. And um, uh, there probably are. And the most conspicuous one would be um, Dunn and the metaphysical poets um, who have long been thought of as having some uh, tethering to uh, mysticism. Um, it could have been a chapter. There were enough chapters, though, to make up a book. Excellent. Uh, one of the things I really admire about The Unknowable, your book, is that you also keep um, keep in touch with language, with the uh, literary form throughout. Um, it doesn't entirely drift away from the fact that these ideas are being mediated through literature. In your introduction, you catalog an abundance of early modern terms, words used to name the unknowable, which are fun to get into, the inexogitable, the indeprehensible, the imperscrutable, the impervestigable, the searchless, the indivinable, the inscrutable. Um, what does this explosion of, of words, the, this explosion of language say about the early modern fascination with the unknowable? There is a profusion of terms that people um, try out. And I th think it speaks firstly to the plasticity of language in the uh, era, that the uh, English language um, isn't fixed. It is is uh, constantly in uh, an experimental process. Um, when a new philosophical, theological, scientific area comes up, this vocabulary needs to be invented from scratch. Uh, and I, I, I do like words that fail to thrive, that um, uh, were born but fail to get up and run about. There, there are a, a vast number of, of them. Uh, so that that's that's probably the, the um, first observation to make around this um, rich language uh, uh, that people are trying out. Um, of equal interest for me is where they, they turn up, that... Um, uh, the collection of terms that you talked about, the indeprehensible, the imperverstigable and so on, often turn up in quasi-philosophical texts, quasi-scientific texts. Um, yeah. And um, this is an era when the parceling out of disciplinary spheres is is not a given um uh, there, there's a sense in which the um writers reel and lurch across borrowed vocabularies across theological and science scientific vocabularies um, and in particular in nat natural philosophy there is a um <clears throat> uh, 
utter um, blur in the um, uh, landscape of the scientific and uh, the theological. And my, my sense is that these words um, somehow fill that gap and speak to a, a um, problem of what remains um, unknown. Um, Mostly, though, uh, perhaps this this cacophony of terms speaks to the vibrancy of the era's poetics, that faced with the unknowable and the unutterable, um, there's a seemingly urgent need to produce a vocabulary, to produce uh, poetics, to produce a set of metaphorical strategies for negotiating the um, strangeness of things. Well, I love that phrase, words that are born to fail. Is that the way you worded it? Or, yeah, well, words that are born but but fail to thrive. <laughs> words that are that fail to thrive. A great great expression. Um, the first chapter of your book is on the early modern understanding of the Book of Job. You look at the authorized version, uh, what is uh, sort of commonly called the King James Bible, as well as a range of commentators from Robert Boyle to Lucy Hutchinson. Can you just give us a brief summary of the action of the book of Job and tell us how the book of Job crystallized or informed the topic of the unknowable? Yes. So um, this is an era obsessed with the Bible. That's a commonplace in one sense. But uh, importantly, this is an era obsessed with the uh, agility of the um of the the scriptures or the remit of the scriptures um uh that's um up and down the social scale has a sense in which um the bible is a text that you can hopscotch around that it exists somehow outside of time it exists with a strange temporality about it um and in addition to this it's just a cornucopia of stories that are played over and over again um now the the book of job was of interest to me firstly because of a very strange very common idea in the 17th century that job emblematizes encyclopedic scientific knowledge this this is more or less incomprehensible to us in the 20th 21st century so um to, to to give a quick summary then of the book of job um we, it opens with um god and satan chatting uh satan has been flying to and fro around the earth and this satan um is not like a Miltonic devil he's uh, often described as a celestial prosecutor um, doing God's uh, God's work around the world and gazing down onto the earth, uh, he lights upon the uh, book or upon the the figure of of Job there, and uh, God and Satan or Satan rather uh, suggests a game, uh, a wager to to play that um, only let pious Job suffer. Um, and he won't retain that integrity, that piety for long. Um, and God agrees to the game, to the bet. Um, and Job's children are all killed and all his worldly property is taken away from him. And he's smitten with boils and he is abject entirely, sitting on a uh, pile of dung while his wife says, curse God and die. Um, now, initially, he refuses that advice to curse God and die, but it's not clear at all that he does over the course of the um, book. Um, we 
the, the, the majority of the book is a dialogue between abject Job and his three comforters stroke tormentors um, who um, uh, ostensibly aim to comfort him, but who insist that he needs to concede his guilt that the awfulness of his punishments proves that um, he is guilty behind this. And this is an argument that he refutes and he um, uh, insists that uh, he has maintained his integrity, that he's got nothing to be uh, <clears throat> to be guilty about. Uh, and the, the, the sheer hauntingness of the poetry of Job is something that... Um, uh makes it so uh attractive a book and yet at the same time it's the most melancholy desolate book um, we can imagine um now the other strangeness of the book of job is what happens at the end of it in the last four chapters after this um debate and discussion that goes nowhere between job and the comforters god comes in um as a voice out of the whirlwind um and um over the course of four chapters god reiterates um that the practice of creation what happened at the origin of the world um and um in in one sense this uh resembles uh resembles the book of genesis it recalls the practice of creation but um, everything about job is quite different the uh emotional labor of creation uh, just works in a very different register um, so um 20th 21st century readers of um the book of job um have tended to be outraged by it, by the sheer uh, flippancy, by the capricious nature of having Job as a cosmic plaything, so so to speak, uh, and have quite often seen the book of Job as a trial of God as much as a trial of Job, that it's God being, um, uh, it's God's justice that is being put on uh, the platform here for for trials um 17th century thinkers simply don't do that there, there is no question of uh hauling god to the bar of supposing that uh the purpose of the book is to kind of impugn the justice of, of god um but 17th century thinkers also have a very um uh kind of sort of different set of questions that they um ask ask of it um when when they put the book of job into concert with the uh, book of genesis it produces um for many 17th century readers uh, a real oddness and some really uh, important things to say about the character of um uh the creation the natural philosophy of uh creation um, in in the book of Genesis, uh, we uh, see creation kind of orchestrated from on high. There is a sense in which um, uh, uh, God uh, opens his, his arms and, and it happens in front of him. Uh, the book of Job is not like that. The book of Job sees creation done as a, uh, an enormous building site. Everything is hard. There is pain involved in creation. It becomes a, um, there's, there's a, a kind of birthing of the earth. There's a division of the firmament that's like a, a vast building project. The creation of the animals is um, uh, agonizing and so everything in the book of Job um, occurs in this kind of modality of, um, well, the, of 
discontinuity of um, pain and, and trouble. Um, and again and again, writers in the era think of Job as being uh, an epitome of encyclopedic knowledge that because God rails at him with uh, a, a, a reprise of creation, um, he is the epitome of scientific knowledge. Um, and at the same time, Job is the epitome of ignorance. This is a really curious paradox about, about the book that um, uh, God lambasts Job precisely because he doesn't know about kind of uh, the, the complexities of creation. Uh, and um, this, this curious notion that Job can emblematize both encyclopedic knowledge and ignorance seems to me quite important in the um, idea of the unknowable in the um, uh, ways in which um, ignorance is a kind of knowledge is a kind of generative um, thing for, for the uh, for, for the era um, so uh, yeah I mean that 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 then is the the sort of re reason why the the book of job um, becomes important for um, thinking about the uh, un unknowable it becomes um, uh, an emblem that Natural philosophy glances at very frequently, if if only because um, Job seems to, or the book of Job seems to reference so many different fields of scientific endeavor. It talks about mining. It talks about um, uh, astronomy. It sort of seems in the view of early modern thinkers to refer to atomism. Um, all kinds of um, scientific fields get attributed to the Book of Job in uh, in strange ways. Can you give us a taste, maybe one or two um, examples of a of a writer taking up Job in a um, a strange seventeenth century way, um, a Boyle or Cavendish or something like that? Yeah, um, I, I um, one perhaps the the um, best writer for this purpose might be um, Thomas Burnett, who writes um, a sacred theory of the earth. Um, and it's um, uh, quite a um, bizarre text. It's um, sometimes seen as being um, uh, the, the kind of earth text of earth geologies um, that produces an account of uh, the long history of the earth. Um, Burnett is a very scientific writer. He corresponds with Isaac Newton. He produces the mathematics of all his theories, a set of vortex theories um, around it. And he's also a very um, theological writer as well, insofar as he wants to ground all his ideas about the geology of the earth in one way or another in the Bible. And his idea is um, this, that the earth when it was formed in creation, was an utterly round ball. It had an egg-like smoothness to it. It was uncracked, it was unblemished by the ugliness of mountains and valleys and rivers and creeks. Um, but that, um, at one early moment, and this relates to uh, a verse in Genesis that speaks about the cracking open of the abyss, and it refers as well to um, some New Testament verses. Um, his idea is that um, at the flood, the earth cracked open um, and all the waters um, of the flood emerged from underground 
rather than raining down upon the earth. Uh, and he he produces this slightly bizarre idea because it's not there in the Bible. There's nothing literal about it. Uh, but he produces this idea on the um, spurious scientific idea that there is not enough water in the circulating rain clouds for the earth to have been sufficiently deluged, for the flood to have been complete. Uh, and he uh, insists that um, it must be true that the uh, that the flood was total, that it covered the entire um, globe of the earth around it. Um, and on the scientific basis that there was not enough water in the um, rain clouds, he produces this idea that the water came from inside. Um, it's it's so bonkers. It's beyond um, uh, kind of imagination how he can possibly have come to it. But his explanation um, comes from Job. Uh, and this idea of um, God's containing, holding in, and then letting go in a gush of um, birthy waters uh, um, uh, in the creation of the earth. And he takes these um, idea of Job that God birthed the earth in quite a physical, motherly fashion. Um, he takes this and he produces um, a rationale for his very strange scientific um, theory. Um, it's it's so off the wall. What's uh, even more bizarre is that um, it has some eight, 10 serious scientific responses to it. Everyone is fascinated by the strangeness of this text, by the combination of scientific acuity and biblical interpretation in this um so i mean that this this is a, a an example of um how the the how job is thought to speak to some uh scientific facets of the um universe you have me excited to return to burnett and uh to to think about that passage um i was fascinated or you, your second chapter is on mysterium magnum written in 1623, what you kind of describe as a negative cosmology after the 20th century writer Franz Rosenweig's term. Uh, who was the author of this text? And what is this deeply weird book set out to describe? So yes, um, Jakob Burma. He he's he's marvelous and he's um he's a bit bonkers uh, uh, as well. Um the book, the, the chapter in the book of Job and a couple of the other chapters as well are quite overarching. They speak to uh, the 17th century uh, intellectual ethos um, in, in broad terms. Uh, there are, um, in addition to that, uh, a few chapters that uh, deal quite specifically and extensively with uh, strange books. Um, yet Jacob Burma was a cobbler mystic. Um, in the early 17th century. He um, comes from Görlitz, which is now the split between Germany and Poland. Um, and in 1600, he um, is said to have had a vision <clears throat> that brewed around in him for 10, 12 years, at which point he started to um, write a set of um, cosmological theories. Um, news of this seeped out and he was ordered to stop which he did for several years um and he was he was denounced as a, a rabid enthusiast by his local pastor um and um in 1620 at which point uh europe was engulfed with the um 30 years war he started to write again in uh, a, a manic 
fashion. He produced a prolific, uh, prolific output of the these kind of cosmological, theo alchemical, spiritual um, texts. Um, and he, he's 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 somebody who's who sort of disappeared from history uh, after soon after he had written, at least in Germany, his works weren't published at that point. Um, and he's he's um, just to speak briefly of his afterlife. Um, he disappeared, but certain, at certain points has become quite important to various literary philosophical movements. Uh, Blake is very interested in him. Later, uh, a German philosophical lineage um, takes him up and um, uh, and thinks with, with him. Uh, but uh, in, in the work I'm writing about in the book, Mysterium Magnum, uh, it's, it's his major late work, and it's ostensibly a commentary on Genesis. Um, but with everything inside out, so so to speak. Uh, This this is, as with the Book of Job, this is a a culture deeply interested in the unimaginable beginnings of the world, the way in which um, uh, we know it happens, it matters how it happens, but we simply can't recover that that moment. Um, Burma, it seems, is able to. Uh, there, there is a sense in, in which um, his account of Genesis is also account, an account of what it's like to live in the eternal, what it's like to live um, uh, in the um, realm where God, where the angels, where devils live. And um, uh, he has this um, idea that he pursues again and again that um, everything that we read in the manifest world, in the biblical, um, has about a, a surging of the eternal, a continual um, kind of pulsing of the um, strange worlds of God uh, through to um, through to the, the visible. Uh, this this quickly turns bonkers, so you'll have to excuse me if if um, I border on on the senseless at this point. Um, to, to give an example, he he's. Um, uh, he, like everybody, is interested in the word, as in the biblical Joanine word. In the beginning was the word. Um, um, and there is a common idea that the um, uh, world is made from the word. Um, in the 17th century, um, for Burma, though not only for Burma, this is taken in quite um, literal senses. So he's interested in the physics of the word. How does the word of God produce and the earth. Does it kind of somehow coagulate into being? Is there a sense of there the being a kind of chemical steam of the word that uh, um, produces the world? Or does it kind of caramelize into material I- existence? So he, he, he produces this um, strange metaphysics of how the non, the utterly non-existent universe comes into being uh, an existent universe um so the um one thing to say about him is that and one thing to say about his uh the tasks that he takes upon himself is um how on the one hand it belongs in the mystical tradition that stretches back to the medieval and how on the other it's very different uh this this particular this germanic mystical tradition stretching back to Meister Eckhart, for example, is 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 rich and well developed. And in general, when we think of mysticism, we're thinking of a personal experience with the divine, 
of the way in which uh, you negotiate your way up the um, uh, kind of sort of ladder towards God. Um, Burma is kind of uninterested in that. It's not about a personal mode of ascent towards God. It's very much about um, uh, the cosmological, the cosmological apophatic, um, how the um, world comes into being and what the world has to do with um, with God. Um, and so um, to... to, to um, return to Rosenzweig who who, who you mentioned um he talks he, he takes up first the idea of a negative theology this common notion of um um the mystical tradition and he adds to it the idea of a negative cosmology um that the world too um has an outward character that may be dull, that may be mundane, uh, but that it's constantly surging with something like the um, the divine inside it. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll stop there with with Burma. Perhaps he's 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 a very very interesting figure, but um, uh, very deeply strange. Um, and I, I should. Um... We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Reiterate something that you say in the book, which is when um, Burma is described as a radical enthusiast. Enthusiast is a four-letter word. It's not. It's not a compliment, right? It's um, marking him as a deeply troubled and heterodox thinker. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, his interpretation of the fall? What um, William Kerrigan calls the evil meal uh, that Adam and Eve share. Um, what was uh, Burma's uh, interpretation and what questions of the Odyssey did his interpretation try to address? And what further questions did um, Burma's interpretation um, issue? It is very strange. And um, he talks about Adam and Eve and talks about the fall in relation to the theological problem um, that um from a certain perspective god seems to blame seems to be to blame for the fall the uh the tempting bauble of the beautiful apple hanging in the tree from eden is is in the view of certain thinkers a kind of act of entrapment there is something kind of uh lascivious about hanging that beautiful uh uh fruit there so various thinkers in various ways want to um circumvent this problem of um god being um somehow to to blame for the fall um, um and burma's explanation burma's way out of this is um uh, utterly strange um so i've i've spoken a bit about his um uh sense that the eternal surges into the world continually um, um in in this sense temporality sequence that we get in the bible is is a bit of an illusion um we see it from our worldly perspective uh but from the perspective of the eternal uh, there is no such thing as um 
uh, ordinary human sequence. Um, so Burma comes up with the uh, impossibly strange explanation for the fall that um, Adam seeps into the earth. He seeps his evil desires into the earth um, and out of that seepage, the tree of knowledge grows, that he is in a sense responsible for the spurting up the fecund um, uh, natural history that produces this evil tree that he then eats the apple from. Uh, uh, Adam is also responsible uh, for the birth of Eve in a bad way. Uh, there being a sense that um, uh, had Adam not fallen, he would have been uh, hermaphroditical, uh, complete uh, version of the humans. But in his fall, in the kind of emergence of evil uh, in him, um, he splits. He splits into two. He and Eve um, become uh, separate creatures. Now, the, the, these are both very bizarre, very unliteral, very unbiblical ideas, um, and exemplify the. Uh, <clears throat> extent of the problem the need to find uh some kind of uh explanation that gets god off the hook that makes god not responsible i, I don't i don't think burma would describe it in anything like those defensive terms uh, but there is a sense in which he uh, evidently wants to produce a metaphysics in which um uh <clears throat> Evil is its own particular uh, human dynamic, though sometimes God is implicated as well, and it's a kind of fecund source of evil. But that's perhaps a, a different question. You spoke earlier that Thomas Brown was kind of the uh, the origin of the project, or, or kind of um, generative thinker early on in the writing of of the unknowable. Um, and your third chapter is on Brown's The Garden of Cyrus. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that text and about Thomas Brown as a writer? Yes. So Brown is a um, he's a doctor. He's a scientist. He um, is a curiously mystic uh, scientist and also quite a um, beautiful writer who has survived in uh, popular memory insofar he, as he has. Um, as a prose stylist of the um, 17th century. Um, in um, his major work called Vulgar Errors or Pseudodoxia Epidemica, he is at his most scientific. He uh, debunks any number of um, uh, false scientific ideas um, and he um, develops a reputation in the era of the English Civil War in the 1640s um, as being a um, slightly offbeat but important scientific thinker. Um, a decade or so later, he um, produces his uh, most incomprehensible uh, pair of texts. Um, uh, and the one that I'm writing about here is, is the, the Garden of um, Cyrus. Um, and this this um, uh, is of interest to me and is of interest in relation to the unknowable um, insofar as it, um, it addresses something quite important in the apophatic tradition that humans are fidget thinkers, uh, that to have any sense of um, 
uh, the divine. We constantly need the jolt of the new. We constantly need uh, a new fix um, because language dies. Um, and language has a sort of half-life and it's very effective. Um, and and then the metaphors we use suddenly lose their energy. So um, uh, the metaphors for God in the Bible, that he is the sun, that he is the light, that he is the king, eh, they kind of no longer really have any um, particular energy and strength to them after a while. And there is um, an important sense in which the... Uh, Constant need for new metaphors is part of the apophatic tradition. We need, we're, we are hungry, we're ravenous for this. Um, it's also, in a curious analogy, an important part of the scientific tradition uh, and the empirical moment in the 17th century that wants constantly to um, accrue new facts, to find new um, elements of the world, to wonder about, to um, think about. And um, the, these might be very different kinds of greed and accrual in most thinkers, but in Thomas Brown, they come together um, quite quite strangely. Um, the Garden of Cyrus is, um, is, is a bizarre text um, in which he um, begins by talking about um, uh, the quincunx. And the quincunx is the um, shape of a domino five. And he talks about how ancient um, uh, agricultural thinkers recommend that this is the way you plant an orchard, that this is the way to uh, economize on space uh, most um uh, most effectively. Um, and he moves from thinking about the quincunx in our agriculture to thinking about um, where else um, it is. And he finds it everywhere. He finds the quincunx um, in all of nature, in all of art, in everything we do. He thinks about um, how bricks are laid, how scissors swivel. He thinks about the scales of fish. He thinks about military formations. He thinks about how legs swing and how plants are designed. And everywhere he discovers it. Um, and there is a, a sense in which Brown writes in quite solemn fashion, quite stately fashion. Um, he seems the epitome of sane, um, but the accrual of the whole world looked at through the lens of the um, quincunx becomes just utterly demented. Um, and the, the, there is something um, uh, in, uh, th there's no explanation particularly for why he uh, accrues kind of sort of this great mass of scientific material, all of which has something to do with the quincunx. There's no real kind of uh, explanation for it, except that we kind of design it for ourselves. Um, and the presumption is that the discovery of deep pattern in the world, the discovery of how the world uh formulates itself and is designed um, has something theological about it. It speaks about the good order of the world when we find uh, a kind of regularity of this fashion. In the 17th century, this is sometimes termed physico-theology. The idea that the uh, uh, good design of the physical world um, produces a theological kick to us. We recognize God in the good design of um, uh, the, the world. Um, and yet at the same time, as we have this kind of sort of moment of um, uh, theological uh, 
um, uh, theologi this theological observation in the character of the world. The text um, uh, accrues and constantly needs to change what object is the, the quincunx it sees. And in this, there is a, a sense in which the uh, something else comes to the fore of the text as we proceed through Brown's madness. And this is the uh, human restlessness that we meet there, the sense of um, perpetual fidgetry. Um, and the, 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 the text as it accrues is um, uh, one way or another speaking about the, the ravenous character of human thought, uh, both theologically um, and perhaps uh, scientifically, that we as humans uh, have an intellectual greed to us, uh, or perhaps a, a particular inattention that we constantly need to turn to a new um, uh, object of our attention. I, I think anyone who's engaged in, um, you know, serious long-term scholarship maybe feels personally addressed in Brown's search for the uh, quincux in a pair of scissors. You know, um, there is uh, uh, that kind of restless search for for good order um, that the the scholar sort of embraces, despite it being kind of chaotic and demented, as you say. Um, can you read um, from your chapter on Brown? I will. I'll um, read a passage that's responding to um, uh, Plutarch, uh, classical author writing in Greek, uh, very influential in um, the 17th century. And he, Plutarch here is speaking about the impossibility of grasping God. And he's talking about Apollo. Uh, I'm here. The impossibility of grasping God being like the impossibility of clutching water. Um, and um, we can uh, sort of uh, understand what a, uh, a gush, a flow of water is like. But if we try and clutch it, when we try and get a sense of um, uh, what happens in that um, flow of water, it, it's nothing. It's no longer a flow of water when we approach it. The mind that can adequately understand flowing water can nevertheless not clutch it to study, but in gripping at it, it disappears. The more one's attention aims to capture in thought the essence of this divinity, who is also the world and who embodies mutability, the more elusive the divine becomes. The flit and trick is somewhere between an epistemological and a theological tragic fact that, quote, reason seeking for a recall sorry reason see, seeing seeking for a real substance is deceived as not able to apprehend anything subsistent in truth and permanent this could be the leitmotif of the garden of cyrus whose spirit of inconstancy figures in its torrent of brief learning experienced in the manner of the apophatic what is unspeakable ungraspable and momentary only the fleeting shape of the absent God, the subject of a long strand of mysticism, becomes in Brown, but also more widely in the 17th century, the model for a very particular kind of scientific concession that nature itself poses its irreducible puzzles, susceptible only to the flood of unanswerable questions and briefly conceivable truths. Yeah, I, I really admire this passage. Um, one of the things, and I think it's come through in the conversation with you, is your ability to weave in vernacular colloquialisms into the into the writing and to also maintain a real sensitivity with the literary text you're engaging with. 
Um, and, and also to be able to talk articulately about theological matters that, that are quite elusive uh, and mysterious. Um, how do you go about um, writing a passage like this? Do you have um, sort of ideals? Do you have uh, a reading group or, or um, academic writing models that you return to? It's much more ramshackle uh, than that. Um, uh, it's responding to a text, thinking about um, particular passages, um, uh, but battling with them, try, trying to, to um, uh, scrunch up a particular text and see, seeing how um, how it works. Um, uh, clearly, there, there are um, writers who I really do uh, admire and a lot of academic ones. Um, at, at the same same time, um, academic writing can necessarily gets caught in the uh, kind of constraints of scholarship. Um, and um, I do like writers who manage to um, uh, escape from that, who, uh, who aim to be more poetic in the um, writing that they do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the, when I read The Unknowable, one of the things that I could definitely um, apprehend in the text was a person writing in a specific context on these literary texts, you know, which is always um, a, a wonderful thing to achieve. Um, I quite admired your analysis of touch. You survey the writings of Boyle, Cavendish, and uh, Lucy Hutchinson, as well as the influence of the ancient Latin writer Lucretius, all of whom thought about touch. Sometimes touch is a way of thinking about surfaces. Sometimes touch is a metaphorical vehicle for thinking about microscopy. What is the touch of the unknowable? Or how does touch allow us access to the unknowable? So the, the, the idea of... Um touch in particular comes through in relation to uh, Lucretius. And this uh, chapter deals with the importance of um, this ancient Roman atomist in early modern thought. Um, in, in many ways, uh, Lucretius as natural philosopher is quite preposterous. His ideas of um, atomism are... Um, uh, according to the scientific lights of early modernity, um, uh, entirely preposterous. And yet the 17th century loves him. The 17th century returns to him uh, continually because I think he provides a particular language for thinking about um, the, the, the tactile nature of things. And um, so this, this chapter um, deals with the character of microscopy and the um, shocking counterintuitive um, revelations uh, that the uh, microscope gave. Um, with 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 Jakob Berger and with Thomas Brown, they're great writers, I think, but neither of them are rare or often seen uh, as great scientists. Um, in this chapter, I'm approaching kind of sort of much more um, formal, traditional science, figures like um, Robert Boyle, for example. Um, and the uh, dynamics of this chapter, or the, the kind of burden of this chapter, is to um, uh, consider the um, utter shock that the era felt in encountering uh a counterintuitive texture of re reality um, that that microscope re revealed. Um, <clears throat> when they started to look through 
microscopes and see, for example, how the edge of a razor, that most pinpoint um, uh, object in, in the world, uh, was actually kind of pockmarked and rugged and anything but um, straight. There is a sense in which writer after writer seems to think that reality has been cheating on them. That they, that reality is living a second life um, under the um, surface of things, and it, it, this produces a, a, a real epistemological shock. Um, it's um, it sometimes understood as um, emblematizing a kind of sort of pigeon-stepped march towards modernity, the the triumph of um, of empiricism, but but that is not, I think, um, how the contemporaries understand the the um, sheer shocking dynamics of discovering that everything you thought you could tell using the power of our vision, using the kind of ordinary empirical tools that we have, is probably wrong. That magnified um, sufficiently, things take on a, an utterly different um, character. That that surfaces that we think um, are flat have all sorts of um, involutions in them, all sorts of uh, sinkages and pores. Um, and the, 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 there is, I think, a sense in which the response to microscopy uh, demands a poetics as much as a um, scientific theory. It demands a way of coping with uh, a reality that is um, uh, doing something entirely uh, different. Now, we, we, this, this would tend not to figure in accounts of the scientific revolution but it should. And a figure like uh, Robert Boyle, for example, who writes um, who writes work, Discourse of Privileged Things, he um, uh, produces a, an account of how um, certain facets of reality are simply not comprehensible to us humans. And, and he's not saying this as a um, theological shrugging off his shoulders. He's saying this as something that needs to be incorporated into uh, a scientific model, that there are um, certain things have to be known poetically. This this is not a, a, an embellishment to the scientific process. Rather, it's an investigatory strategy for um, uh, a reality that is so viable, so porous, and to which we have such partial uh, knowledge. Um, Your fifth chapter is on Anna Trapnow, a radical prophet. She serves as a kind of test case in your book for thinking about enthusiasm and for thinking about uh, incommunicability and incoherence. Who was Anna Trapnow and how does she fit into the history of early modern thinking about the unknowable that you're telling here? This chapter is um, something of a hairpin bent on the last one. It's a real change of pace, but it does um, look back to Jakob Burma as um, a kind of pulsing radical tradition. Um, um, Anna Trapnell is a prophet in the 1650s. Um, she is a um, figure who... Um, <clears throat> is waiting in, in 1654, is waiting with a fellow radical who is um, being tried in the precincts of parliament. Uh, and while she waits, she falls into a trance. Um, and um, in her trance, she begins to prophesy. And the um, prophecy 
gushes out of her and it continues for 12 days and this becomes a um a, a london wonder anyone and everyone comes to see this um preaching prophetess um and um her prophecy is biblical after a fashion but it's also vehemently anti-cromwellian <clears throat> uh, she sees cromwell as having failed in his um uh, radical revolutionary aims has having gone over to um to the dark side so so to speak um and she produces this um surge and gush or uh, this this medley uh, of hymns of exegesis of political material um, and the 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 shock of her public performance for everybody who's listening to it is the terrible suspicion that this may be real that this may be um uh god speaking through um <clears throat> this shipwright's daughter in a way that uh, people are a little too nervous about to interrupt now as i say in some ways we're in a very different um discursive world here we're not in the world of natural philosophy here but there it would simply be wrong to speak about the unknowable in early modernity without also speaking about prophecy uh, because this is a um uh facet of speech which kind of sort of channels the fury of god in some fashion which uh, reaches uh particular aspects of reality that are um uh, lie to the side of ordinary um, discourse. Um, and in, in a figure like um, Anna Trapnell, there, there are um, any, any number of co complexities um, to do with the gender dynamics of a lower class woman speaking in this very public um, format. Um, on the one hand, we need to think of her as um, being uh, quite consciously uh, disruptive in uh, in the political character of how we speak there is a sense in, in which uh, she knows what she's doing there is a particular um, set of strategies by which she um, adopts the biblical um, generic registers and runs with it and at the same time um, she plainly doesn't know what she's doing not to believe that she is in a trance that she is um, channeling this bellowing voice of god uh, undermines her serious that her seriousness the the sense in which she simultaneously is alert to what she's saying um and is simply an explosion of um of ideas is is a um paradox around the prophetic mode in uh in early modernity more generally it would seem like john milton is at odds with the unknowable uh, you quote victoria silver who is paraphrasing samuel johnson in describing paradise lost as a thesis ridden poem and it seems that you know it's a poem that is supposedly justifying the ways of god to men but in your you know utterly uh, persuasive um, argument about Milton's theology of disorientation. You um, you read uh, moments of um, sharp perspectival shifts as uh, vertiginous. Can you walk us through your your interpretation of uh, Milton's work? Yes. So Milton is a poet who's often seen as hyper rational 
um, who's whose explanation of the fall um, comes down to humans' failure to heed the basic, simple, straightforward edicts to follow our reason to um, to remain true to the kind of sort of simple commands that Adam and Eve are, are given. Um, at the same time, uh, Milton is a poet um, who is utterly vertiginous, and Paradise Lost produces this um, picture of the u- the universe in a vastness, in a um, uh, hyperbolic scale that um, can't pass but make us dizzy. If we're not um, suffering from vertigo when we're reading Paradise Lost, then we're not reading uh, um, uh, correctly. Uh, and th- th- this, th- this matters, I think, for, for Paradise Lost. It is so giddy a work that at the same time, it's... Um, uh, hyper precise and it's vast it has a geometrical exactitude in how it describes um, the character of the universe and it also has a, a shape-shifting elasticity to it as well um, and so so um, paradise lost uh, seems constantly to uh, to be veering to different um, uh, different ends of every scale we can imagine it's um uh, on the one hand, uh, it's a poem of um, intimate human melancholy of Adam and Eve, who we meet uh, lolling on the grass with uh, Raphael before their fall. There is something uh, kind of intrinsically local about the scale and the character of the tragedy. Uh, to it. And at the same time, the poem um, it has has a scale that is um, simply uh, kind of sort of un, unimaginable that uh, describes the whole uh, shape and character of the universe and the beyond. And, and the, the, this, I think, is something that uh, is really significant and is quite forgettable, that most of Paradise Lost takes place outside the universe. Um, and how are we meant to imagine what happens um, outside the universe? So my, my sense of the, the vertigo of Paradise Lost, of the disorientation of Paradise Lost, is partly to do with the uh, endless shifts of scale that we find in um, uh, in, in the epic. Um, um, and you introduced when, this great term, sorry. right? Free, indirect, ubiquity. That, that's terrific. You know, the, the the first couple books we're closely aligned with Satan. Then we we have God's the sort of God's view of Satan, sort of coasting through the universe. Um, you, you were about to say something. Um, so for me, Paradise Lost um, uh, epitomizes something really important about the character of the unknowable in early modernity um and yet at the same time there's also a a kind of sort of counterintuitive sense in which uh milton will concede nothing as unknowable to him he uh intrudes on the politics of heaven when i use this phrase the the free indirect ubiquity of milton that there being a sense in, in which um he uh sees no lack of decorum in uh entering into the mind of God, into describing the uh, uh, kind of sort of political machinations of hell, um, for example. And uh, the, the, there is an important sense in which Milton never wears his erudition 
humbly. He knows everything. The, the epic is um, encyclopedic in scope. Um, and yet, um, at, at the same time, I um, uh, think there's an important sense that the vertigo we experience, both in the kind of physical geography of the epic, but also in the way that words are constantly slippy and constantly um, undermining their own self, in which um, we're, we're in a world where disorientation is um, the order of the day. Everything that we experience about Paradise Lost, from the lostness of um, uh, Adam and Eve's innocence to the um, uh, eeriness of uh, uh, hell and how it's similar to humanity. Uh, continually, we, we experience a, uh, a kind of disorientation that is similar to the apophatic tradition. The apophatic depends entirely and essentially on the experience of, um, of vertigo, of um, an epistemological uh, disorientation. Now, in, in one sense, this is um, uh, central, I think, to the traditions of interpreting um, Paradise Lost, that um, uh, Milton's language is slippy, that there is something uh, <clears throat> kaleidoscopic and uh, wayward in his similes, in his language, in the sorts of resemblances that he produces, the disorientating resemblances between um, Eden before the fall and humans after the fall. Um, for me, this is a theological facet uh, this disorientation is a kind of sort of theologically load-bearing um, aspect of paradise lost uh, that has something in common with uh, the mystical tradition and um, is after a fashion at odds with the rest of the theology in paradise lost plainly free will grace and a whole set of doctrinal um uh, issues are crucial for what Milton is um, is doing, how he puts forward his explanation to justify the ways of God to men. Uh, but for me, that's only a facet of the kind of sort of theological work of the epic. And there is another that bears on the character of the unknowable, the character of um, the dizzy engagement with what lies beyond human thought. Finally, Kevin, can you tell us what you're working on now? Do you have a next project in development? I may or may not. I'm uh, uh, the 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 idea that's bubbling away at the moment is a development of the uh, notion of cosmopoetics, more specifically in how uh, poetry encounters science as it frequently does in early modernity um and the uh uh energies of this will go into to the idea that um scientific verse is not versified science that's not what it's trying to do it's not simply a um telling of what could be um <clears throat> told in prose in a different fashion but rather that um uh producing verse qualitatively alters the disciplinary parameters of what it's speaking about. So in one sense, this this bears on what I'm doing here, a sense in which um, the production of scientific verse um, allows for uh, different disciplinary sprawls to emerge. Um, perhaps that's what comes next. Which writers do you think you'll take up in that 
projects? Are there any you're particularly drawn to? It may involve uh, John Donne, for example. He's a, a central writer in this um, <clears throat> uh, category. But th- there's there's a vast number of um, early modern quasi-scientific writings. One of my favourite is um, Phineas Fletcher's The Purple Island, which is a <clears throat> vast epic anatomy of the human body that has an actual anatomy written down one side of the page in a poetic equivalent um, alongside it. It's it's terrible poetry, but it's intellectually um, fascinating. Well, um, we'll look forward to that project. Thank you so much for coming on the pod, Kevin. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.